Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is June 14th, 2012, and my guest is Enrico Moretti, professor of economics at the University of California, Berkeley, where he holds the Michael Peavy and Donald Vile Career Development Chair in Labor Economics. He is the author of The New Geography of Jobs. Enrico, welcome to Econ Talk. Thank you very much, Russ. Our topic for today is The New Geography of Jobs, the ideas in your book. What has changed over the last three decades? What's new about the geography of jobs? Well, the last three decades has seen two major global changes that have reshaped the American labor market. One change is the acceleration of globalization. And the second change is uh, a variety of technological innovations that have uh, uh, affected the productivity uh, of different uh, workers differently. Now, these two changes are global in scope, but they have profoundly different effects on the local economy of different metropolitan areas in the United States. So globalization and technological progress have increased and strengthened the, the, the labor markets of some areas, but they have also weakened the labor market in other areas. And uh, this has resulted in a a redistribution of jobs, wealth, and population across uh, metropolitan areas in our country. So what are some of the cities that are, that are doing particularly well and uh, have particularly high education? And what are some of the cities that are not doing very well and have low levels of education on average? The level of education is crucial because for the past three decades, uh, the average level of education in the workforce has been the key predictor of the economic success of communities. So communities that have a lot of highly educated workers, uh, especially a lot of college-educated workers, they've attracted uh, a lot of good employers, uh, and this has resulted in uh, a pretty strong economies. For example, the San Francisco Bay Area is one, Seattle is another one, Boston, uh, but it's not just a blue state, red state thing. There is Austin in Texas. There is Raleigh, Durham in North Carolina, uh, parts of Dallas. Um, there are a number of highly educated cities that have been able to attract a very vital and vibrant innovation sector. And this has resulted in job creation wage gain for the residents. I want to make a distinction, which you occasionally make in the book, when you talk about the importance of college-educated workers, uh, it's particularly important for those in what you call the innovation sector, people in high-tech, biotech. So that would include, obviously, San the Bay Area in San Francisco, particularly the Silicon Valley, the San Jose, Palo Alto, Mountain View area. It would include Seattle, obviously. It would include Austin. It would include Boston. It would include, to some people's surprise, perhaps Washington, D.C., 
which has a, a fairly strong um, private sector component in addition to its government sector. Uh, so when you're talking about college-educated workers, you're talking about, in particular, college-educated workers who are working in, in what you call the innovation sector, right? That's right. But their presence in the local economy matters not just for jobs in the innovation sector, but it also matters for job creation in the rest of the labor market. Uh, I, I argue in the book that the innovation sector has grown a lot um, and that there's, there's been a shift in the industrial structure of this country away from the production of physical goods into the production of new innovation and new knowledge and new technologies. Um, but the innovation sector remains um, a small part of the overall labor market. It, it, by my account, it's about 10% of the overall labor market. The vast majority of our jobs are not in, in high-tech. They're not in manufacturing. They are in the local service sector. About 70% of our jobs are in, in, in positions that we could call local service sector, which includes everything from barbers to uh, taxi drivers and waiters, uh, but also doctors sure. and lawyers. Nurses, nurses. yeah. Um, that's common across all industrialized economies. Um, there is basically two sectors in, 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 in an industrialized economy. There is the local service sector, which provides lo- services and goods to the residents of an area. And then there is what economists call the traded sector, which includes high-tech and manufacturing and agriculture and, and extractive industries, which compete on the international and national market. Uh, now, although the vast majority of our jobs are in the, the former sector, the local service sector, um, it's really the, 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 the vitality, the productivity, and the degree of innovation in the traded sector that is the key to the prosperity of a local community. Yeah, that's a very deep idea, and it's a nice piece of of economics, mainly because it's, I think, not obvious to most people. But the the point you make in the book is that there's very little, at least right now, this may it's changing a little bit, but there's not that much productivity growth in the provision of local services, right? Explain that and explain then why the other sector, the traded sector's productivity is so important. Well, you know, wages and standard of living of a country and of a city increase when the productivity of its workers uh, increases. Uh, it makes sense. Productivity is just the number, you know, it's the amount of goods or services that you sell per hour worked. Um, now, in the, in the local service sector, there are occupations and in industries that are... Uh, not very likely to experience large increases in productivity. Think about a barber. It takes pretty much the same amount of labor to cut your hair today that it took 50 years ago. There's a little bit Think, of technology added to it. They, they get the clippers sometimes working. but it, it's, that, That's it, right. It takes, they do improve. It does improve a little bit. A little bit I'm but, not claiming it, it's... And fixed, the, scissors, the scissors are better. I, had a hair, I, I interviewed the, a woman who runs a hair salon she spends a lot for her scissors. They stay sharper, and they probably do a better job. But in general, it's hard to – you can't get a haircut in half the time or a quarter of the time that you used to. It's pretty much right. the same amount of time. You can't – and when you go to a restaurant, 
Um, there is a little bit, 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 there is some increase in productivity, but it's limited. Uh, the, the amount of labor that a waiter spends to, to wait your table is not all that different from the amount of labor that it took 50 years ago. Um, and so a lot, you know, a taxi driver is the same, a bus driver is the same, a teacher is the same. By and large, there, there are some important exceptions, but by and large, the, serv- the local service sector, uh, because of the technology that it uses to produce services, um, tends not to grow uh, its productivity uh, very, very fast. By contrast, the, the traded sector, uh, which is made of manufacturing and high tech and, and, and other parts, agriculture and so on, has experienced and is experiencing vast increases in, in productivity. Um, uh, think about all the new technologies that there are that, that make uh, productivity higher for, for uh, workers in, in the manufacturing sector. Now, those, those technologies that make workers more productive, they tend to raise the productivity of the traded sector, um, and therefore they tend to raise wages in that sector. Um, but that increasing wage doesn't stay just in that sector, uh, because workers can move across sectors. Uh, a worker can be either a carpenter or, a, or work in a factory. They can... Ultimately, the wage needs to be roughly consistent in the two sectors, and that's why, ultimately, the increase in productivity in the trade sector benefits the wages of all workers, uh, not just the one in, in, that, in that sector. So let me be a little bit skeptical about one piece of that, and I think, obviously, it's true in general. So it's true that, for example, to get people to be doctors, you have to pay them enough to get them not to be uh, designers computer designers so wages in 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 doctoring have to doctors wages and salaries have to be somewhat competitive with salaries in the traded sector and of course doctors also can move they they can trade themselves they can move around so in that sense there's a there's a national labor market but if i have a low skill and i'm not able to do the jobs in the traded sector the effect's not as large correct that's right the effect is larger, the closer the skills that are used in the traded sector are to the skills that are used in the non-traded sector. Well said. Um, That said, you know, if you are, if you have an high school degree um, and the wage, and you're working in, say, uh, you're working as a carpenter, um, but you could also work potentially as a a blue-collar worker in a factory. When the productivity in the factory increases, then your wage will at least to some extent account for Absolutely. the increase in the, in the wage in the factory. Otherwise, you will just leave uh, construction and move to the factory sector. And, uh, and so competi- competition among construction firms to, for workers, has to, they are forced by competition to pay the, the wage that would, exactly. that, that would get them uh, out of the factory. So you tell a very nice story, which I think is underappreciated, about the transformation of the manufacturing sector, which used to be the driver of productivity growth over a long period of time, part of the driver um, in the early part and middle of the 20th century, and how uh, that's less so today because of productivity and globalization. Um, and but that we're still we still make a lot of stuff because that, that you make that point a few times. It's very important to to remind people that the manufacturing sector in the United States is 
is quite extraordinarily productive. It just doesn't have as many workers as it used to have. That's right. I don't think people realize that. But uh, today we are producing, in terms of value, twice as much as we're producing as as we were producing 30 years ago in the American manufacturing sector. Uh, so American manufacturers are, are doing fine, but um, they're using fewer and fewer workers. And, and the reason is that uh, machines have effectively substituted labor in, in this case. If you have ever visited a factory, you'll immediately see there is it's nobody incredible. around. It's incredible. So <laughs> everything is made by machines. The and, statistic you quote that in, 19, in the 1950s, the average worker at General Motors could make seven cars in a year, and now they make 28. I'd like, you know, that's just, that's an unbelievable transformation. That's right. It means that for the same amount of cars sold, now GM needs um, 70% fewer, fewer workers. Um, and so it, that alone means that there is fewer and fewer jobs in, in, in this sector. Uh, in some sense, this sector has become so productive and so successful at, at, at using the best possible machine and robots that it needs uh, fewer and fewer workers. And then I think most people then say, well, what are gonna, what's going to replace all those jobs? And the answer, of course, depends on your skill level. But what has replaced those jobs seems to be, to some extent, the innovation sector. And you point out that Although people think outsourcing is taking away all of those jobs, that's not true. That's right. I think this is one of the great misconceptions that are out there in the public debate, which is globalization uh, is and outsourcing are um, reducing the demand for uh, workers in our high-tech sector and our innovation sector. But the reality is that, that that's not true. Globalization and outsourcing are actually good for labor demand, uh, for the demand for, for high-skilled workers in our, in our country. Um, and there, is, um, there are two reasons. Um, first of all, um, outsourcing allows high-tech companies in our country to be more competitive and therefore to thrive better and therefore ultimately to hire more in this country. Um, there, there are a series of studies on the, uh, on, on the uh, pharmaceutical industry, the biotech industry, and the high-tech industries. Uh, and they, a lot of, most of them conclude that outsourcing actually helped American companies to, uh, to hire highly skilled workers in our country. The second reason is more general. Uh, if you think about globalization, Globalization, it's effectively an increase in the size of market that companies have access to. Now, this increase in size of market is good in general for all companies, but it's particularly good for companies that uh, in the high-tech sector and in the innovation sector in general. And the reason I don't think it's fully appreciated is the fact that the cost structure in this sector is such that most of the cost is fixed. If you are an high-tech company, most of the cost that you're facing is, is, is fixed R&D cost. If you're Microsoft, most of the cost that you have in developing Windows is fixed. You're, you have to pay the, the thousands of hours of work for your software engineers. That cost is fixed. It doesn't depend on how many copies of Windows you sell because the cost of making an additional copy of Windows is trivial 
it is the cost of the of the CD ROM or and the cardboard. And that's good, and we're getting and we're getting rid of that. <laughs> and, yeah, exactly. Now, now it's we're now just a little bit of bandwidth, a little bit of bandwidth. Exactly. So the, the the variable cost in this industry are, are very low, and the same is true for 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 a biotech firm. Most of the cost is upfront R and D cost. The cost of making the pill at the end is trivial relative to the cost of paying all the scientists and the labs to develop the patent. So the innovation sector is characterized by fixed cost, high, large fixed cost, and small variable cost. Now, for this industry, increasing the size of a market, actually, it's a, it's, it's a boom, it, it, because it means that your profit increases, but your costs don't increase. As much, very much, so, yeah. And so this is one of the reasons why I, I, I think that globalization is, is, is one of the key drivers of the rise of the innovation sector. And as you point out, though, you know, when people debate these kind of issues, they don't they look at one category, say, of of um, of high tech workers. So they'll look at, say, computer programmers and they'll see that that many, many companies are outsourcing their computer programming from India or elsewhere. But they don't look at the entire sector. The entire sector has exploded in job growth over the last decade. It's huge increases. That's right. Um if you look at employment, for example, in software, it has increased much faster than the employment in the rest of the labor market over the past 20 years. If you look at employment in Internet, it has increased 20, 200 times faster than the employment in, in the rest of the labor force. These are sectors that are heavily open to outsourcing, but they're creating more and more jobs in, in the U.S. So let's talk about, although you know, we talked, as I alluded to a minute ago, Although many, many jobs are increasing, those jobs that are increasing are typically skill-related. And so what you hear people complain about, and it's an, it's an important concern, is that in 1950, if you just finished high school, you could get a good job. You could get a job in a factory. And as those jobs have become less numerous because of the productivity changes you're talking about, now, if you've just graduated high school, you can't get a very good job. And as you point out, the wages of high school graduates who don't go on to college, not only are they not growing as quickly as other parts of the labor force, they're actually falling in real terms. That's right. The, the average wage for a male full-time worker um, with a high school education today is about 20% lower relative to 1980. Um, some problems with that, and some of which you point out, which are that the, the deflating CPI that you use, maybe we'll talk about that in a minute, maybe it's not so accurate, and it's even less accurate for low-income workers than it is for higher-income workers. It doesn't include benefits, but they're not doing so well. That, that part is clearly true. They're not doing as well as others in the economy. I think it's an ambiguous. I, I think for the first time in history... In the history of, the, uh, of America, um, the typical worker, the median worker, which is someone with a high school degree today, um, his wage has an increase relative to the previous generation. In fact, has declined. Um, and this reflects, um, again, these two forces, globalization and technological progress, that have effectively reduced the demand for his skills relative to the demand for uh, other workers' skills. Yeah, I think the empirical evidence is a little more 
uh, is a little more ambiguous. Uh, you know, I think besides the um, the issue of um, the CPI and how you deflate nominal wages to get a real wage, besides the fact that you're not including benefits, you've also got issues of immigration and other factors that have changed who the median is. But I'll accept the point that that they're not that the growth in productivity and in wages for higher educated workers like you like you and me uh, is is much much greater. So I always am reminded of I always think about somebody in 1950 saying, uh, "Well, in 1900, you could be a blacksmith and make a good living, and now you can't in 1950." So that's sort of the situation we're in today. In 1950, you could have made a good living as a factory worker. You can't today. There aren't enough. There aren't very many of those jobs to go around. The question is, you know, what should we do about it, uh, or what should somebody do about it? I don't know if it's we. What should workers and and students and others? What kind of decisions should people make? Given that that's a reality, there's no doubt. There's, as you point out, and many others have pointed out, the returns to education are very high. So, what should be done? Well, there's a lot of people who claim that we should. Um, defend and protect the American manufacturing sector from from this type of threat. Right. And um, That's their policy prescriptions are often a combination of subsidies for manufacturing or specific parts of manufacturing and or some type of protectionist policy that would limit the import of, of cheap goods from um, from other countries. Um, my, I, I'm, I'm skeptical uh, of these policies. I think they would, they would be counterproductive. And most importantly, I, I doubt that they would uh, slow the decline in, in blue-collar jobs. Um, the decline in blue-collar jobs, as we argued, is driven by structural forces in the economy. And I think um, it, it, it's unlikely to, to slow down. Um, and it's not just that there is fewer and fewer uh, jobs in manufacturing, but the type of jobs in manufacturing are also uh, uh, less and less uh, the type of standard blue-collar job that you have in mind. That's a great point. We have lost an average of 360,000 manufacturing uh, blue-collar jobs in manufacturing per year for the past 30 years. But in the same period, the number of engineers in manufacturing has doubled. So I don't think that the solution, if we have in mind protecting jobs for the uh, less educated Americans, I don't think the solution is to, to try to throw money at the manufacturing sector and hope that this blue-collar job will come back. Yeah, you know, as, as you point out, if you go into a modern factory, and I, I have, and I know you have, and as you, as you say, one of the most striking things about it is there's nobody in it. Uh, yep. the, a lot of the people who are in it are there just to make sure that the machines are going. And so that's unlikely to be a, a great paying job. Uh, the people who can fix those machines, who can customize those machines, and that the interested listeners can go back to the podcast uh, we did with Adam Davidson where we looked at there are sectors of the manufacturing uh, sector that there are parts of the manufacturing sector where there is some high skill work going on, but it's a small sector. It's just not likely to be a place of. Um, it's not going to be a place of job growth in general. 
Um, one of the surprising factors that I found out in researching this book was that if you look at employment in computer manufacturing or semiconductor manufacturing, uh, those peaked uh, respectively 25 and 12 years ago, and they've been declining ever since. And again, this reflects the fact that even in these advanced productions, when you're making computers or or semiconductors, um, the twin forces of globalization and automation have reduced the need for for bodies in these factories, for, yeah. for blue-collar workers. But at the same time, the number of highly skilled, uh, highly educated workers in those two industries have increased. Uh, and I think the best example of this is, is Apple. Um, Apple has... You know, if you have an iPhone or an iPad, that iPhone, that iPad was designed, was engineered, was marketed uh, from Cupertino here in the Valley by highly skilled American workers. But it was, its, its physical components, including the very sophisticated electronic components, were by and large not made in, the, in America. They were made in, in Asia, in, in Singapore and Taiwan. And then finally, the product was assembled in, in Shenzhen, China. So what this, this type of supply chain where the, the innovation part is in America, but the physical manufacturing part is, is outsourced, um, it, 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 it's getting, it has it, it, become the standard for, for uh, most American manufacturers, both in high tech and in more traditional uh, parts. And this means that in, in these industries, the jobs that, are, that remain are highly educated, highly, um, highly skilled, but not, they don't have a lot to do with the physical production of things. Now, before we leave this topic, and I want to move on to cities, which we'll, we'll get back to uh, in a second, I, you have a section entitled How China and Walmart Help the Poor, and uh, that's an unusual uh, section in a book. To, to have fine. So talk briefly about that. Well, that section is motivated by the fact that, again, a lot of people look at globalization and the job losses um, that, that it involves, and they conclude that we would be better off without it. But <clears throat> um, although, as I said, there are, prof- there, there are profound job losses for some group of workers due to uh, outsourcing and globalization of, of low-skilled positions, there are also gains in terms of cheaper products. And that section uh, talks about some uh, interesting research that has been done on how much people pay for what they consume. And researchers have basically followed different, uh, you know, representative sample of households. Uh, and these households, every time they went, when they, they went out shopping and they came back, they were given a, a scanning machine and they were scanning the goods that they, 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 they bought and they were tapping in the price they paid. And what emerges at the end of this study is that uh, different households face different type of uh, price changes, different type of inflation rates, effectively, depending on their their income. Households with low income, they tend to experience less inflation uh, over the past 20 years than households with with high income. And this reflects the fact that households with low income are more likely to buy from places like Walmart, 
and are also more likely to buy um, cheap consumer products that are made cheap by globalization, effectively by, by the fact that they are made in China or, or in Vietnam. By contrast, high-income households spend a larger fraction of their income on personal services that are less exposed to uh, global competitions and therefore they experience steeper price increases. Effectively, it's as if we have not just one inflation rate in our country, we have multiple inflation rates depending on the type of goods that you buy. And as it turns out, over the past 20 years, thanks to globalization and in part thanks to Walmart, those who have low incomes have experienced lower inflation rates than those who have high incomes. Yeah, my dad um, has been telling me for decades that the CPI is meaningless. And I think that's a little strong, but he's on to something. And, you know, his argument's always, well, I don't buy what's in the basket. And as an economist, <laughs> well, I don't buy the representative basket. And as an economist, I always used to argue with him. But as I've become more Austrian in my old age, I'm, yeah. uh, I'm more interested in the aggregation problems. And well, the, 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 you know, CPI is an average across many, many, many households. Um, well, it's actually worse, look- it, but I think it's worse than that. I think it's a, it's an average across many, many retail outlets, and I think the BLS has failed to capture the signif- the volume, the massive volume that that Walmart's been able to drive through its stores. And so they continue to sample for a long time. They didn't sample Walmart at all. They they didn't, for example, on the food side. I don't think it took them a long time to sample Walmart's groceries. Maybe they still don't, but they they also don't get the weights right. Probably is the problem. Because they don't correct maybe enough for the volume in the overall economy. I don't know what it is exactly, but it's a very important phenomenon. But even using their own data, what you find is that the CPI is different depending on who you are um, and depending on your income. Because the type of goods that you consume are different. And, they, and, and if you are low income, you tend to spend proportionally more on goods that have, um, that have experienced less price increase. Exactly, thanks to to China and Vietnam, and the magnitude and, and Walmart, and the magnitude is shockingly large of this effect. It's not five percent difference, right? It's huge. Yes, yes, it's it's a large effect, uh, and it's also made larger by uh, my, my study on on the difference in in cost of living due to housing costs. But I guess we'll get to yeah. Let's later. get to that. So let's let's go move on to cities. Um, Let's talk about you, – you contrast the difference between Seattle and Albuquerque, and one of the reasons it's such a great contrast is that we have such a romantic vision of Seattle today because of Amazon and, and Microsoft and other high-tech companies, but it, wa- it wasn't always that way. That's right. I, 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 I was searching – as I was writing a book, I was searching for a tale of two cities that could illustrate – uh, how the increase in the jobs in the innovation sector can help some, econ- some local economies to, and some cities to grow. Uh, and I found the perfect, what I think is the perfect example in, in the story of, of Seattle. As you pointed out, we have this great image of Seattle today as a, this vibrant, Hip. cosmopolitan yeah. uh, local economy. But in the late 70s, Seattle was uh, very, in very different Conditions. Uh, Seattle had a, an economy that was um, heavily uh, focused on traditional manufacturing and, and services for lumbers and extractive industries. So 
as you can imagine, in the 70s, these were not great, great industries to have. The only uh, innovative uh, part of their economy was Boeing. But Boeing was, was struggling in, in the late 70s, was laying off people by the thousands. So the economy was in really poor shape. Um, and uh, people were leaving the city uh, by the thousands. And was, at some point, the, the situation was so dire that at some point a billboard went up on, on the freeway that goes from the airport to downtown that said, the last who leaves Seattle, please turn the lights off. And, and that, that, that and billboard the, to me was a sign of a community in, in, in decline. It got so bad, even their basketball team left out, went to Oklahoma City, but I'm not sure that's related to the story, but go ahead. <laughs> um, but then something happened that, that changed the history of the city forever. Uh, on, and it had to do with Microsoft. Uh, Microsoft was not um, uh, founded in Seattle. It was, at the time, was in Albuquerque, in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Albuquerque, New Mexico at the time was a more, uh, had more high tech than Seattle did. Um, and in fact, the main reason why Microsoft was there was that their first client uh, was, was there. Uh, Microsoft stayed there for four years and was doing fine, was prospering. But in 79, Bill Gates and Paul Allen, the two founders, decided that they wanted to be close to their families who, that were in, in, in Seattle. So they relocated the, in, the, the company back to Seattle. Now, at the time, this was a small company. Yeah, it was only 15 employees. Yeah. And nobody really paid attention to this, to this move. But in retrospect, that was the seed that was responsible for the growth of the high-tech sector in Seattle and the complete reshaping of the local economy and the rebirth of the city, both economically, culturally, and in terms of amenities. Um, if you look, for example, at wages in Seattle and Albuquerque, you see that they're, at the time of the move, they're not all that different. And more importantly, they are trending in very similar ways. So they're changing from year to year in very similar ways. But after the move, as Microsoft starts growing and start attracting around it many more high-tech firms, you start seeing the wage in Seattle uh, growing much faster than Albuquerque. Albuquerque economy start, stagnates for, for effectively for three decades after this move. But the Seattle economy starts booming, and the, grow, the larger Microsoft becomes, the larger the gap between the two cities becomes. And it's not just the wage. It's the number of college graduates, for example, in the two cities. Um, every passing year, it start, the, the gap increases. It's now uh, almost double uh, in Seattle relative to, to Albuquerque. Um, it, it, it's, it's effectively, although the two cities were not all that different economically in 1979, they're almost like two different countries. One is an advanced, innovation-driven economy. The other one is, is, a, uh, is a struggling, middle-income country. Well, what I love in your discussion of these two cities and in economic development in general is pointing out some of the incorrect lessons that people have learned from this tale of two cities. So I used to teach in at Washington University in St. Louis. The city struggled, was very stagnant. The, met, the metropolitan area is somewhat healthy, but the city itself has done very badly over the last few decades. And they always thought, we need to be more like Seattle. <laughs> so they would send city officials to Seattle, and then they would come back and say, well, 
The University of Washington is a key part of Seattle's success. They have a lot of great high-tech departments. And Washington University could also be such an anchor. And then they say even stupider. That That's somewhat interesting. But as you point out, a lot of uh, great research universities are not – their cities around them are not thriving. But then the second thing, they'd say things like, well, Seattle has a lot of farmer's markets. So we'll have some farmer's markets and – you know, maybe they should have made it rain more, you know, try to see the clouds. <laughs> and they'd, yes. they'd forget things like, well, St. Louis is farther from Mount Rainier and, and great skiing and a, a thousand other things. But but your point, which is more important, is that it's not just, well, it's hard to, to imitate successful cities and, and copy them and grow like they did. Your point is that they confuse often what came first and what came second. So University yes. of Washington was a great research university when Seattle was more like Albuquerque. It didn't help. <laughs> um, yes, that, that line of reasoning co- confuses cause with effect. Yep. Effectively. Um, the Seattle, um, you know, the University of Washington in, in Seattle is now thriving in great part because donation from the Gate family, the <laughs> Allen Foundation yeah. and all the wealth that, that is being created in the city. Um, in 1979, it was certainly not as good as Washington University in St. Louis. Um, and, and yet, uh, Seattle has an high tech cluster and, and, and St. Louis doesn't. Um, the, this tendency of rationalizing ex post based on what you see now. It's, a, it's very pervasive and it's very dangerous because I think it leads people to spend, leads community to spend vast amount of money into policies that are not likely to, to change the local economy. I think the example of the farmer market is also, is, is even more poignant. Um, um, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, this notion of revitalizing cities using farmer markets and public art and, and, uh, and other type of local amenities that attract the so-called creative class became very popular thanks to a series of books. Uh, but again, there is no solid evidence that suggests that those things have any effect on, on, on jobs. They certainly are important for, 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 for how nice a community is, and I, I'm not saying we should not invest in these things, but uh, we should do it for the right reason. If we decide to have farmer markets, we should do it because it's nice to have uh, fresh fruit, uh, yeah. <laughs> but not because it's going to bring us an high-tech sector. Or, or it's going to bring all these great college students who like fresh fruit. Uh, yeah. Talk about, it, it, talk about Berlin, actually, because that's a great example. Well, this, um, this theories about how important it is to attract um, the so-called creative class to revitalize a city would predict that cities that have a lot of highly, um, highly creative Young people are the cities that are that are going to thrive, and I think a great counterexample is is Berlin. Berlin, since the wall, the fall of the the wall, has become a magnet for highly creative, highly artistic uh, types from all over Europe. Um, it's it, it's it's in part because it's such an interesting, culturally vibrant, uh, and uh, <clears throat> Uh, politically uh, uh, open type of cities that, that a lot of Italians, Spaniards, and French young people with, with a lot of education, they, tend, they, they move to Berlin. Um, it's 
it's uh, according to most uh, guidebooks, is one of the coolest cities in Europe, possibly in the world. Um, but it, uh, there's one problem with this picture uh, is that it doesn't really create uh, many private sector jobs. Berlin has one of the has, you know, for the past uh, 20 years had one of the highest unemployment rate in Germany, one of the lowest per capita income among uh, German states, uh, and it basically survives because it's the capital, and therefore it 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 it's supported indirectly supported by taxpayers everywhere in Germany. Sure. And also because it's such a hot touristic destination due to its uh, very peculiar history. But if you look at other sectors, you know, solid private sector innovative employers, yeah, they have a couple of uh, high-tech startups, but, you know, it's nothing relative to the size of the city. So to me, the notion of revitalizing St. Louis using you know, making it cooler and, and sexier, um, it's, it's unlikely to work. Uh, you know, if it doesn't work for Berlin, it's, it, I, I don't see how it could work for St. Louis or for Detroit. Yeah, I'm with you Detroit. there. And the other thing they would do is they'd, they'd create these private public sector cooperative incubators and other things because they, it's the same mistake. Well, there's a lot of startups in Seattle, so we need more startups. And right. th- this is an emergent... They- Phenomenon. It's not something you can steer and direct easily, and it's just a mistake. Yeah, if you look at the history of America's great innovation hubs, um, it's I haven't found one that was directly, explicitly engineered by an explicit uh, policy on the part of the government. Um, it, it's really hard. This is not how innovation hubs and clusters get developed. They often get developed because of idiosyncratic factors, like a local firms succeed and it starts attracting more firms like that. Uh, and this creates a cluster that then becomes stronger and stronger. Um, and that and that's feeds on itself. I, I think the history of Seattle is, is very, uh, is, is a good, you know, it's a good, uh, it's a good example. Uh, like, how did Microsoft change the, the Seattle metro area? Well, Microsoft has 40,000 employees in Seattle. But, okay, you, you might say, okay, that's a lot. But the reality is that this is a metro area of 2 million people. Yeah, so nothing. one company alone yep. cannot do it. How, the, way, the, re, the, the real reason why Seattle reshape uh, the local economy is, is actually there are two reasons. First of all, is that by being there, Seattle attracted many more high-tech and innovative companies there. It became a magnet for the cluster became the, the seed for, for the cluster. Um, and one great example is, is Amazon. Amazon was founded in 95 by Jeff Bezos. At the time, Jeff Bezos was not living in Seattle. He had no personal reason to be in Seattle. He wasn't born in Seattle. In fact, he was born in Albuquerque. <laughs> but when he, decided to, you know, when, he, when he decided to found Amazon, um, he, he, he places it in, in Seattle because by 95, so 15 years after, Bill Gates' original move, Seattle has become a magnet for this type of innovative companies. And now there are tens of thousands of jobs that are, that are there because of Bezos' decision. So it's not like Microsoft directly helped Jeff Bezos to, 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 uh, to locate there, but indirectly created the ecosystem um, that made it almost impossible for someone like Jeff Bezos to pass 
on on Seattle. And it and it looks like when you look at it at a point in time, it looks like uh, these advantages of clustering and hubs are going to persist forever. And then you think about Detroit, which used to be a hub, a tremendous hub of manufacturing activity because of the auto industry. Yes. Um, Things change. There, there is recent research that shows that the rise of Detroit as an innovation hub parallels very tightly the later rise of Silicon Valley in terms of job creation, patents, uh, startups, and so on. So, as you pointed out, Detroit used to be the, the Silicon Valley of its times. It used to have one of the most successful industrial clusters of its times. It had some of the most innovative companies, um, some of the best engineers. And yet, it didn't, it didn't, it didn't last. Um, and I think that's one of the, one of the, the, the lessons that, that places like Silicon Valley should take. Why, what, what was the failure of, of Detroit? Well, the failure of Detroit, there were a set of small failures. Detroit um, bought its local politicians, the unions, and the car executives. They became complacent, and, and, and they had their share of responsibility. But the biggest failure of, of the community as a whole was the fact that at a time when it had one of the most prosperous and vital and creative ecosystem in the world, um, it failed to reinvent itself and leverage that ecosystem into something new. When the demand for auto, for auto, um, the demand for, for workers in the auto industry started collapsing, Detroit failed to find something new. You know, the technological frontier keeps evolving. Um, and there's no technology that, that, that stays on the frontier forever. The secret for a community is to reinvent itself uh, into new things. And I think this might be the most, the most important difference between Detroit and Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley keeps reinventing itself. It, it, it used to be mostly hardware and semiconductors in the 70s and the 80s. And then it became mostly uh, software. And then it became mostly internet, and now it's branching out into new things like uh, nanotech or, or clean tech and biotech. And so nobody knows whether those, those technologies will succeed and will create jobs, but this is an ecosystem that keeps uh, following what the frontier of technology is. In contrast, Detroit failed to, and, and now it's probably too late because the, the ecosystem is not there anymore. And so there is little left to, to be leveraged. Yeah, just a small quibble with your choice of language about you using Detroit and Silicon Valley as if they're uh, purpose of dis- decision makers. Of course, they're just a agglomeration of individuals. And I think what your example points to is that it's the people in Silicon Valley who've reinvented themselves and the people in Detroit weren't as able to. But even that somewhat misleads because, and this will be a nice segue into the other points in your book. I mean, is it really a tragedy that Detroit is is what it is? A lot of people have left there. A lot of them, I'm sure, have moved to New York City, and they've moved to uh, California, and they've moved to Seattle, and the city itself. I mean, that we could have a romantic association with certain cities, but we really care about the people. And the we pe- do. And the people um, who have the and- pe- you know. So some cities thrive and some don't, and. Some places rise and some fall, and it's 
maybe this not. has always been happening through the history of America. Uh, as the as I was saying, as the technological frontier changes, some places grow and other places shrink. Uh, it used to be that agriculture was the the, most, the, the engine of jobs and prosperity, uh, and then when it shifted to manufacturing, a lot of the rural areas started losing population, and so people relocated. I, 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 I take your point, and I agree, in fact. Um, but if you look at today, for example, uh, with the divergence fortunes of American uh, cities, uh, you know, as large as ever, uh, so with differences, in, for example, in wages, as large as ever, you see that there are vast differences in the ability. So, so there are these large differences in, in the economic fortunes of city would suggest that the economic return to geographical mobility are high. And yet, um, the, there are vast differences in the ability of relocating and, 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 and moving to different cities among American workers. Some American workers are much more able to do so and much more able to, for example, leave declining clusters and move to, to new cities, and others are much less able. And this is costing uh, the less mobile uh, increasingly in terms of jobs, careers, and incomes. So let's talk about that because that's a, a key theme in the book, and I'm a, a little bit skeptical of it, uh, this, of the, the spillover effects question is you know if you live in detroit um if you have low skill and you live in detroit you don't you don't make a lot of money if you have low skill and you live in seattle you make a little bit more maybe a lot more even if you're low skilled and, and your argument is is that is that there are these spillover effects from the higher educated people in a community that benefit the low skill workers uh and that aren't then spilling over into places like detroit that have not been able to attract uh, high skill workers. So talk talk about why that why that's true, and yes. um, and and why it's important. Well, I think it's probably the most important part of the story uh, because not every worker in America can work for Microsoft or for Google or for or for um, Amazon. Right. As, as we're saying, the vast majority of um, our jobs are for people outside high tech, and. Uh, but uh, every time a community is able to attract one of these highly skilled, innovative uh, jobs by attracting an IT company, it, support, it, it gains not just that job, it gains many more jobs in the local service sector. Um, I call this the multiplier effect. And... It, this multiplier effect is remarkably large. My estimates suggest that if you, you know, for each high-tech job that you create in a community, five additional jobs are supported um, in the same community outside high-tech in the local service sectors. And these include a variety of positions, some of which require college degree. So this would be the doctors, the lawyers, and the teachers, and, and, the, uh, and the nurses. But others don't require a college degree. These will be the taxi drivers, the barbers, and the waiters, and the childcare workers. Um, all these uh, jobs are ultimately supported by the fact that there is more wealth now in the community thanks to that new high-tech um, company. So ju just to give you a sense of the magnitude here, 
Um, you know, there's a lot of talk about Apple and Apple job creation. Well, Apple has, here in Cupertino, has 13,000 employees. The mostly, as we said, they're, you know, high-tech employees mostly with a college degree, a lot of engineers uh, and, and designers and so on. But by my estimate, it supports almost 70,000 additional jobs in the metropolitan area outside Apple and outside iTech, both for high-skill and low-skill workers. So remarkably, the main effect that Apple has on the local economy is not in iTech, is outside iTech. And this is important for, it's very important for workers who don't have an education. Um, and it also suggests that if, as a city, you're trying to generate jobs for the least fortunate of your residents today, probably one of the best things you can do is to try to attract high-tech companies that hire highly educated workers, because those are the ones that eventually will support all the local service jobs. So what's the... Let's talk then about the low-skill workers, not just, as you point out, local services are provided by a wide range of educational levels, lawyers, doctors, barbers, waiters, etc. But there are cities that have now, you talk about the great divergence, there are cities that have large numbers of high-skill workers, cities that have low numbers of of high-skill workers, and the cities that have the higher numbers, low-skill workers in those cities do much better than they do in those other cities. And you, you, you claim that that has policy implications for a whole variety of, of, um, of issues. Mm-hmm. But first lay out the, the argument and as to why it's true and um, the magnitude. So it's based on uh, uh, two, of, of my, uh, two, two studies that I've done where I've related the productivity and the wages of workers with an high school degree to the number of college graduates in the same area, and in the same metropolitan area. And what I found is that metropolitan areas that have a lot of college graduates, in those metro areas, workers with an high school degree tend to be more productive and therefore tend to earn higher wages than high school graduates in, that have the same demographics, the same level of experience, but are located in metropolitan areas with fewer uh, college-educated workers. Um, and I find that this spillover effect uh, from the highly educated workers to the less educated workers is, is, is economically substantial. Um, so an increase at 10% 10 percentage point increase in the number of college-educated workers in the local labor force tend to be associated with about an 8% increase in the productivity and in the wage of the high school graduate in, in, that, in that local area. Um, and so most of my study, uh, most, most of the, 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 the largest piece of, of those two studies was dedicated was devoted to trying to understand whether there are differences in, in the high school graduates who locate in yeah. areas with a lot of college sure. graduates. That'd be the first problem, right, you'd want to worry about. Yes, is exactly. They're so, not the same. For example, is an high school graduate who locates in Boston, does it have, is it the same as an high school graduate who locate in a city with less education, let's say 
uh, a place like New Orleans or, 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 Flint, or Albuquerque. Or Flint, or, Michigan, which is what exactly? Or Flint, Michigan. And um, yes, to some extent it is, they, they, but the, the difference is they're not large enough to explain the gap in wages. So, so an high graduate in Boston tends to have, tend to be more productive independently of being located in Boston just because it has higher, um, higher uh, um, analytical abilities and higher uh, demographic differences. But after you control for those, uh, you still have a difference in productivity and wages. So I'm going to argue. Uh, I'm going to argue that you can't control for them. I'm going to make two arguments, and you can try. To, I'll let you respond. So the first is is that there's a whole bunch of immeasurable, intangible differences. You're stuck measuring observable things, measurable things like IQ or I don't know, parents' education, whatever the data set gives you. But it can't measure things like ambition, drive, uh, reliability. Charm, etc. Right. So that's the first problem. The second I, I, problem. I actually, can, if I can, yeah, sure. I, I, I actually agree. Those are crucial differences. In fact, I don't control only for the observable differences. In one of the two studies, I, I had a longitudinal sample of workers that were following the same worker over time. So I was comparing. I wasn't comparing across two workers, one in Flint and one in Boston. I was comparing actually the same worker say, in Boston, uh, as the number of college-educated workers around him or her increases. With another worker, say, in Flint, as the number of educated workers doesn't increase enough. So it was the within-worker comparison that, was, um, that gives me, gave me those, those estimates. But you still have a, I, but I, you still have but a problem. I, I am very sympathetic to the notion that there are, there are, there are, it, those things are very hard to it's really hard to control for everything else. Well, and the other problem, of course, the, the biggest thing is is controlling for why they leave. So we need to have the longitudinal survey. So, for example, in all of these studies, and you have many in the in the book, and they're all interesting, by the way. And I don't I don't doubt the correlations. The question is, what are the implications of the correlation? So often the implication is that oh well, if this person then moved to Boston is from Flint, he would make more money. Which, of course, raises the question, why doesn't he move? Now, there could be many reasons he doesn't move. Uh, some of them could be related to his productivity, unfortunately, for the analysis. But it could also be things you talk about in the book that are problematic. Right? Maybe he likes Flint, right? He's willing to accept a lower wage because he has family there or he has ties there, roots there. You talk very uh, poignantly about Italy and how – in, in Europe in general, people are much less mobile. They're more eager to stay near their, their families and they tend to make less money as a result. So how do you well, distinguish between, say, imperfect information, which would mean there's these wonderful opportunities for these people. If we could just get them to learn about it or transaction costs. They don't have the money to get to Boston or just that's what they like. It's hard to distinguish yeah. between them. Sure. So, so the, the, the first point that I wanted to, to clarify is that the, uh, the wage differences that we see uh, using the study that uses longitudinal data mm-hmm. are, are based on, um, they're not polluted by differences in ambition, family connection, IQ, and all these other factors that can potentially pollute the correlation. Why not? And therefore, they're uh, they much closer to the causal effect of moving from a city with fewer educated workers to a, 
a city with many educated workers. Um, why aren't they polluted now, why, by those Why don't things? they move? Well, it's most of it has to do with it has to do with two things. The main thing is that the cost of living are different. That the the, the living in Boston, uh, you pay a higher cost of housing and therefore a higher cost of living than, than in Flint. So the marginal worker, um, the one that is in diff- that, that that the one that is considering relocating, it's it's going to be roughly indifferent between the two cities. And the second reason why they don't move is, as you pointed out correctly, is that some just have preferences for for staying in you know near their family, near near their their uh, um, where they they grew up, near their friends. Um, in in uh, in neither of these two cases, um, I would say the estimates in my two studies would be necessarily polluted uh, because they they come from observing the same individual um, over time, the one who stay, you know, the stayers, not the movers. But the the cost of living difference uh, it greatly mitigates, especially if it's measured correctly, the gains from moving and therefore the spillover effects, right? So if you have cities it, that have, for whatever reason, housing policies that limit new housing so that increases in demand for housing push up prices rather than increase the amount of housing uh, disproportionately, then you're going to see cities that look like that the that the low skill workers are making more, but their real standard of living isn't much higher. That's the challenge. That's right. That's correct. But they are uh, more productive. Uh, otherwise, you wouldn't see the, those those high wages. So the standard of living does not mitigate the spillovers. Um, well, they're not it, more productive. They just have a higher compensating differential for the cost of living. And I, I don't know. Well, because if they were more productive, then the companies wouldn't be willing to pay those salaries. Um, the the salary, the, their nominal salary, is a good measure of how productive they are. There is a reason why um, salaries are very high for a high school graduate in Silicon Valley is because that person is highly productive. Otherwise, a company that is in the traded sector, like Google. Yeah, I think you'd have to distinguish between whether they're in the trade or the non-traded sector, because if they're in the non-traded sector, I mean, that's just... That's what, true. Well, yeah. the, the, but the, 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 the same, you know, the differences in the traded sector will determine differences in salary in the non-traded sector as well. In the non-traded sector, those higher salary do not represent and higher productivity because of the reason that we discussed yeah. early on. Um, but in the trade sector, they do represent higher productivity. And I wonder and in, for both sectors, the cost of living is the equilibrating mechanism that makes uh, the level of welfare, well-being uh, of individuals, uh, at least those on the margin, roughly comparable across across metro areas, which I think actually raises another interesting point, which is the vitality of uh, the strength of labor markets in, in innovation hubs today in America has two effects. On one end, it reshapes the labor market. On the other end, it reshapes the, the housing market. And these are two, two sides of the same, of the same coin. Yeah. When, when the labor market strengthens, you have uh, the cost of the price of land and the price of housing, and therefore the cost of living increases. Um, and this, has, this implies that the ultimate effect on people 
well-being depend on whether you are a renter or you're, you're an owner. Uh, an owner benefits because the value of his assets um, increases, uh, meaning the house. A renter, part of the increase in, in wages that the renter experiences by moving to a stronger labor market is in part offset yeah. by the increase in, in, in cost of living. Yeah, no, it's a fascinating dance of, uh, of markets. Um, and that there's a lot of interesting, a lot of interesting things to think about. Um, yeah. we're out of time. Let me ask you one last thing and, and we'll close on this. Um, regardless of these impacts, uh, and I think, I think what's fascinating about your book is it, is it, it reminds us a whole bunch of interesting aspects of, of labor markets, how dynamic they are, how much is going on beneath the surface that's hidden by aggregation. Um, and we see this right now in the recession when you look at unemployment rates by education, for example. It's a very mm-hmm. different economy right now for highly educated people than it is for people with less education. It's much tougher. Um, so these are all interesting things, and I think the the questions about inequality, I think, are – I think very complicated. I think there's a lot of pat and um, not very thoughtful discussions of it. But regardless of, of that, it's certainly true that human capital is really important, which is how your book ends. Uh, what what we know and our skills have a big say in, in what our standard of living is as a as a nation, as a city, as an individual, and we, for our children. And I think it's an enormously difficult problem. To think about how to, um, how to make that better. And I think the standard answer, which comes out of your book, is one I'm skeptical of, which is to encourage more college education. Now, I'm a college professor. You are too. That'd be good for us. I'm not so sure it's good for everybody else. So why don't you talk about those issues and, and where you think we ought to be heading with education, education policy generally? Well, I, I think, um, I- if you, if you look at historically in the United States, uh, the, the, the rate of growth of college educated workers was pretty brisk in the three decades after the war, War II, uh, and then it started slowing down significantly. And I think um, there is there are good reason to think that a lot of the problem with inequality today have to do with that, with that slowdown. Uh, there's a lot of talk about the 1%, the 99%, but the reality is that, at its heart, the problem of inequality in America today has not to do with a few millionaires or billionaires in the top uh, 1%. It really has to do with the difference in size between those who have a college education or more and those who have a high school education or less. The fact that the demand for those with a college education has increased so much uh, because of new technologies and uh, globalization, as we discussed. And the fact that the supply of college-educated workers has not kept up has translated into more and more higher and higher relative wages for those with a college degree relative to those with less education. Uh, so I think uh, if we're thinking about how to address the issue of inequality, uh, I don't think we should necessarily be the all, the all, the only focus should be on taxing the Warren Buffetts of the world. 
I think the focus should be in increasing the number of highly educated workers in our country so that more people can take advantage of the, um, of the gains from the higher demand for highly skilled jobs and the gap between those who have those jobs and those who don't have those jobs uh, in terms of salaries uh, becomes less, uh, less pronounced. Um, this would also have the benefit, increase, vastly increasing the number of college graduates in our country would also have the benefit of encouraging what I think is the most vital part of uh, our economy, which is the, the innovation sector, which is the part of the economy that uh, is taking the place of manufacturing as the engine of job growth. Um, so for these two reasons, to encourage innovation sector and to reduce social imbalances, I think it's in our interest as a society to favor uh, investment in, in human capital. And of course, we already do, as you point out in the book. You're suggesting we should, we should favor it more. Uh, yes, I am. I, I think that um, the, um, the benefit of education uh, of a college education uh, go to an individual who invests in that, in that uh, makes that investment and that therefore goes to college and acquires that education but it also goes to the community at large in the sense that they benefit uh, other workers in the same community uh, uh, to be more productive and, and I think that this type of um, market failure is the main in my view is the main rationale for for uh, encouraging investment in in in, in, uh, in human capital, you know, it's not it's not about uh, it's not a moral argument. It's not necessarily a, a, an argument about politics. It's, a, it's an argument about the economics, uh, and I think it's 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 an investment that would would pay off. The other investment I think would pay off is encouraging investment in 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 R and D. That's also another another area where some of the benefits of that investment are not appropriated by those who pay for the investment, but they go to um, his or her competitors in the same industry. There, there, there is evidence that suggests that there are this type of spillover. This type of the spillover from investment in R and D uh, is large, at least in some industries. And so that's another area where I think, as a society, we wanna we want to rethink the incentives that we put on innovators. Um, they're basically the same argument. Uh, investment in human capital, investment in innovation, I think they generate uh, external benefits uh, outside those who make that investment. And so it's, it's in our interest to, to support those investments. But as you point out in the book, the political process often creates the way those arguments are actually implemented are often not as effective as the, uh, yeah. as the economist would suggest. So. Is the this? political process, yeah, it, it's it's often not based on this type of arguments, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a challenge. My guest today has been Enrico Moretti. Enrico, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thank you. I enjoyed it. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.